Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Cowden coming to you this week from Denver, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee face two new lawsuits, both accusing the denomination of covering up sexual abuse in local churches. We'll have details. Also, big ministries often partner with Christian music artists to rally concertgoers to sponsor children in other countries. It appears to be a mutually beneficial relationship, but where does the money really go? We'll take a look. And results are in from our January survey of ministry executives, and the average age of ministry executives might be trending downward, but succession planning continues to be a big challenge. We begin today with news that Pentecostal leaders are hitting the road to influence the election. This month, a troop of popular pro-Trump influencers and so-called prophets are heading, headlining uh, seven election year events that are called Flashpoint Live to call what they are describing as patriots and believers to gather together and rescue America. The Flashpoint Live roadshows kick off February 8 at Karis Bible College, which is near Colorado Springs. It was founded by televangelist Andrew Womack. The show will make stops in Tulsa, Virginia Beach, and Fort Worth, among other cities, before ending up in New Orleans in October. Evening sessions will be live streamed. Who will be part of these events? Well, the show is slated to include the familiar Trump supporters and including my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. But the heart of the speaker roster is made up of Pentecostal preachers, including Lance Walno, a promoter of Seven Mountain Dominionism, which claims that Christians should rule over unbelievers, and Hank Kuhneman, who's a pastor from Omaha, who claims an incredible accuracy in the word of knowledge and prophecy concerning world and nation events. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with Mike Lindell, but can you give us a little more background about the other individuals? Yeah, sure. Lance Walno, for example, uh, came to fame prophesying Trump's 2016 victory. In 2020, though, more than 150 self-proclaimed prophets, including Walno, missed the boat with false prophecies of a red wave and a second Trump administration. In 2021, Kuhneman prophesied that Trump's loss would be overturned and the former president would return to the White House. So, of course, that hasn't happened either. But there have been some who are raising alarm about this tour. Yeah, evangelist Mario Murillo, who is a regular panelist on Flashpoint, which is a Christian current events program that's tied to these Pentecostal Christian nationalists, said that he's actually stepped away from this show because he didn't want to appear alongside what he is calling false prophets. In a widely circulated blog post earlier this month, Murillo called those associated with the tour false ministers. But if not everyone is buying what Flashpoint's political prophets are preaching, its organizers are undaunted, claiming that it takes only a few Holy Spirit true believers to move and perhaps rule over mountains. Our next story involves Fuller Seminary. 
You have Ruth Schmidt, who is a salaried employee at Fuller, has been there since 2020, was fired from her senior director position after declining to sign Fuller's statement of faith, uh, which is a requirement for all Fuller's employees. With her imminent ordination in the United Church of Christ, which affirms LGBTQ identities and lifestyles, she balked at signing a statement which says that sexual union must be reserved for marriage, which is a covenant between one man and one woman. And Schmidt's refusal to sign prompted the seminary to re-examine its policy on human sexuality. David Emanuel Goatley, the president of the school, issued a community update on January 18th stating that the board had authorized seminary leadership and he wanted to invite all who are a part of Fuller Theological Seminary to engage with a scripturally inspired disposition of discernment and dialogue. He said this is a sacred journey join me in proceeding lovingly and carefully. How have the students responded to this? Well, an informal group of students initiated a petition. The petition has so far received 200 signatures from both students and alumni asking the school to pause their disciplinary process. And how has the school responded? Well, on January 25th, the school, the board responded saying that they had already commissioned the president to oversee a focused faculty discussion on the topic. The recommendations from that process, they said, should be turned over to the board in May. Uh, the board chairman said in an email that in the meantime, the community standards and our statement of faith represent the current articulation of our core standards that guide our community's life together. At the end of the study process, we will address any needed clarifications and any corresponding implications for employment and community life. Our next story involves new abuse lawsuits for the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee. Two new lawsuits accused the denomination of covering up sexual abuse in local churches. One of the lawsuits was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Tennessee on behalf of six survivors of alleged sexual abuse. They claimed that SBC leaders violated the Racketeer Influenced and Corruption Organizations Act, better known as RICO. The act was uh, originally passed to deal with organized crime. The complaint, a civil matter filed in late December, names the SBC's executive committee along with churches in Colorado, Illinois, Louisiana, and Alabama. It also details the alleged abuse suffered by the plaintiffs and the consequences of that alleged abuse. The complaint alleges this, defendants have maliciously and systematically engaged in covering up and concealing instances of sexual abuse by church members and employees as a strategy of denying the rights of sexual abuse survivors. Can you give us a little more on the other lawsuit? It was filed in January 24th in Pulaski County Circuit Court on behalf of two men who were not identified, who alleged that they were abused as children by a former music director at First Baptist Church in Benton, Arkansas. Uh, that music director, David Kent Pierce, ultimately pleaded guilty to four counts of sexual indecency with a child back in 2009. He was released from prison in 2012. The complaint in the Arkansas lawsuit names First Baptist, the Arkansas Baptist Convention, the SBC, and the Executive Committee and alleges that the pastor of First Baptist knew of the abuse and allowed Pierce to apologize and keep his job, at least in the short term, before he was ultimately fired and later convicted. Now, has the SBC or the church said anything? 
Well, First Baptist told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette that the church will continue to cooperate with any investigation regarding the allegations made in the lawsuit and will work with its legal counsel to respond appropriately to the lawsuit. A spokesman for the executive committee said that the committee had not yet been served with either lawsuit. Do you think these lawsuits will stand? Well, Jeffrey Grell is an attorney and expert in RICO cases, said that religious groups such as the Southern Baptist Convention aren't exempt from being accused of racketeering under RICO. However, he said it's unlikely that the plaintiffs in the lawsuit have standing to sue. He also said that the law is meant to address economic harm rather than bodily harm. Religious groups can be held liable for abuse, pointing to massive settlements by Catholic dioceses, but attempts to sue the Catholic Church under RICO have failed. Grell also said that the SBC's lack of top-down hierarchy will also weaken any RICO claims as local congregations hire their pastors rather than being assigned a leader by the denomination. Well, Warren, let's take a short break here. When we return, our reporter Kim Roberts investigated the arrangements between Christian music artists and mega ministries that sponsor them. And we'll take a look at what she found. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hey, everybody, Warren Smith here interrupting the podcast just to let you know that we have a new donor premium for the month of February. Handling Allegations in a Ministry is a book written by my friend Teresa Sidebotham. Uh, It's a really helpful book if you are in leadership in either a ministry or a church, or maybe you want to give to somebody that you know in leadership. It's uh, uh, Teresa has been handling and investigating Uh, as an independent investigator, uh, abuse and other kinds of issues within a church for many, many years. She's one of the nation's experts on this topic. I've had her on the Ministry Watch podcast uh, in the past, and uh, I just really think this book is a great resource, and we'd like to make it available to you. So for a gift of any size uh, during the month of February, we'll send you this book. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Well, up next is a story we promised before the break. It's a story of Christian music artists and child sponsorship ministries. Now, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, Natasha, have experienced going to a Christian music concert where bands will ask for support for a child sponsorship ministry like Compassion International, maybe World Vision. Uh, But behind the scenes, money is exchanged between the charity and the musical artist. How does that partnership work? Well, according to Professor Leah Payne, who recently released her book, God Gave Rock and Roll to You, uh, said She said that there is a variety of funding models, including both flat fees and commissions, and without such arrangements, some bands wouldn't be able to tour. It was and still is a mutually beneficial financial relationship for the artist and for the organization, she wrote. Is there anything wrong with these partnerships? 
Well, there are some artists who choose not to uh, engage in these arrangements for ethical, theological, and sometimes artistic reasons. Uh, CCM industry insider and best-selling author Brant Hansen is an advocate for Cure International, and he told Ministry Watch that he believes that full disclosure and transparency are important. Hansen said, I do wish artists would disclose the arrangement. I certainly don't blame Compassion, for instance. I'm a longtime sponsor and love them. But I do think fans should know if a sizable amount of their first year sponsorship dollars is actually going to the artist and not the children. And what ministries have artist ambassadors? Well, I've already mentioned a couple. Compassion International was among the very first ministries to develop a program with Christian musical artists in the late 1970s. They did that with the Imperials. Compassion currently works with nearly 100 artists and bands who are passionate about our mission of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name, at least according to a statement from the group. Some of those bands include Casting Crowns and Matthew West. They say the ambassador program is among the most cost-effective, financially efficient ways that they have found to connect donors with children in poverty. The partnerships have helped connect sponsors to more than 400,000 children so far. What other organizations use this model? Christian Relief Group World Vision lists several Christian bands that it paid for fundraising, including Finding Favor Music, 33 Miles, RVRB, and Building 429. The bands were paid somewhere between $50,000 and $140,000. One Child and Child Fund are two other groups that use a similar model. Now, I should add, Natasha, that there's a lot to this story. She, uh, Kim Roberts unpacked sort of the difference between you know, taking a flat fee to help sponsor the tour and taking a commission and what the differences are and whether one is ethical and one is not. If you're interested in sort of unpacking these issues, uh, go to Kim's story, which is at ministrywatch.com. And by the way, let me just mention too that this story came to us as a tip from a reader, a reader who had gone to a Christian concert and was uh, interested in and concerned about these child sponsorship programs. So thanks to that reader. And also just a quick uh, note that if you've got a story idea you'd like for us to pursue, send us an email. Let's move on to our next story. And it's on the transition between nonprofit to for-profit organizations. First off, is that even legal? Yeah, transitioning from a nonprofit to a for-profit uh, or the reverse of it is legal, but it's complicated and involves a lengthy restructuring process, asset distributions, and state approvals. Sean Kosofsky, owner of Mind the Gap Consulting, says that rules vary by jurisdiction, but generally the easiest solution is simply to dissolve the nonprofit and reincorporate as a corporation. That would happen at the state level. So how does that work? Well, state attorneys general are typically responsible for approving any liquid liquidating distribution. Uh, a tax-exempt organization would need to distribute its assets to another 501c3. In other words, you can't simply accumulate a lot of assets in a nonprofit organization and then transfer that into a for-profit organization. Uh, nonprofit funds cannot be used to create wealth, but they can be used to pay for attorney's fees and employees during the transition. Now, can you give an example of this? 
Yeah, there are a few examples, and uh, honestly, Natasha, not many, but some of them are like really big. For example, in the last few decades, uh, we've seen the conversion of nonprofit hospitals and schools to for-profit and vice versa. Grand Canyon University, for example, which is now the largest Christian college in the country with 117,000 students, is a significant example. The school operated as a nonprofit from 1949 to 2004, becoming a for-profit under a publicly traded parent organization, Grand Canyon Education. It then switched back to a nonprofit in 2015, securing a 501c3 status from the IRS. It was a an $875 million transaction. Grand Canyon Education transferred the property to Grand Canyon University, along with a lot of tangible assets. Uh, Although the IRS has already approved that transition, the U.S. Department of Education has rejected the application over concerns about its ties to its former owner. And since 2021, the parties have been involved in an ongoing court battle. Grand Canyon University can't market itself as a nonprofit until the department approves of the switch. And Grand Canyon University isn't the only Christian nonprofit closely intertwined with a for-profit entity. That's exactly right. Uh, The Inspiration Network, for example, which is an organization we've written a fair amount about here at Ministry Watch. They're based in South Carolina, but they're actually right outside of Charlotte, just over the South Carolina border. They're a Christian media nonprofit organization. They own several for-profit entities, though, under the same control, and they raise tens of millions of dollars in donor funds every year. Uh, $23.9 million, for example, in 2022. Uh, the top executives uh, enjoy huge salaries. The CEO earned nearly nine, over $9 million last year. According to the latest Form 990s, the Inspiration Network, though, has ser- several taxable entities uh, over which it has direct control. It also controls four property development firms that are worth about $42 million. The filing also mentions over $117 million invested in an unnamed subsidiary. Now, we cite these two examples not because they're breaking any laws. I want to be clear about that. Rather, they represent the lack of clarity and oversight uh, in tax regulation, which is unequipped, at least under current laws, for active enforcement. Well, Warren, let's cover one more story before our break. What do you have? Gerald McDermott is an American Anglican priest and retired professor of theology. He was invited to join a mission organization called uh, Mission Organized, rather, by the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem in late January uh, to show solidarity with the Israeli people. He joined participants from 18 countries, uh, heard eyewitness testimony from massacre victims and some of the relatives of the 136 Israelis still being captive. The number of visitors to Israel has decreased dramatically since the war with Hamas began, but in December, groups of evangelical Christians began to arrive. Yeah, in the past two months, we've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of Christian groups coming to Israel, said Josh Reinstein, who is the uh, director of Knesset. Christian Allies Caucus, a not-for-profit organization that encourages 
support for Israel among politicians and faith leaders abroad. Now, since October 7, evangelical Christians have donated tens of millions of dollars to Israel's first responders and non-governmental organizations. And Reinstein said that Christians not only in America, but around the world are supporting Israel like never before. He, for example, pointed to pro-Israel groups in Africa, Asia, Europe, and Latin America. Now, what were some of the stories that came from those who went on this trip? Well, Lisa Powell, of uh, the founder of Lisa Powell Ministries International, said that she came to Israel in January for her 38th visit, visit, and she saw entire families staying in one hotel room. Nick Hansen, who is the co-pastor of a Pentecostal church in Denmark, said, was in Israel on October 7th to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, while the shock of that day has subsided, uh, he said that there is now a somberness, a silence, and a void without joy and without peace. Everyone seems to be on high alert, on guard for the next attack. Warren, we're going to take another break when we return our lightning round of Ministry News of the Week. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hey everybody, Warren Smith here, interrupting the podcast just to let you know that we have a new donor premium for the month of February. Handling Allegations in a Ministry is a book written by my friend Teresa Sidebotham. Uh, It's a really helpful book if you are in leadership in either a ministry or a church, or maybe you want to give to somebody that you know in leadership. It's uh, uh, Teresa has been handling and investigating Uh, as an independent investigator, uh, abuse and other kinds of issues within a church for many, many years. She's one of the nation's experts on this topic. I've had her on the Ministry Watch podcast uh, in the past, and uh, I just really think this book is a great resource, and we'd like to make it available to you. So for a gift of any size uh, during the month of February, we'll send you this book. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? World News Group announced last week that uh, the organization's founder, Joel Bells, died from Parkinson's disease complications at his home in Asheville, North Carolina. He was 82 years old. Uh, Nick Eicher is a longtime uh, editor at World, and he said that in the past 33 years that I've been a part of this project that Joel started, I have never met anyone who so consistently applied his theology to his work and life. I've never never saw his trust in his good father waver, even when he could no longer be in the office doing what he loved. Now, can you give us a little history of Bell's career? Well, I sure can. In fact, I, you know, I worked at World for years, and Joel was a, a close personal friend of mine. So this is a loss to a lot of us that worked at World over the years. And uh, but also, it's a, a sign of real encouragement. Joel Bells was a man who remained faithful to the end and uh, had kept his hand to the plow to the end as well. He got his start in journalism in 1977, and he when he worked for the Presbyterian Journal, uh, he founded a God's World publications in 1981, which was kind of designed to be a weekly reader for Christian kids. Uh, But soon, 
uh, adult parents of the kids that were getting God's World News asked for an adult version, and in 1986, World Magazine was born. Uh, Starting in the 1990s, World uh, began to do more investigative journalism, uh, including some stories that I did for them over the years when I was there, uh, including Mark Driscoll's book-buying scandal and financial mismanagement at Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, The publication also received praise for its coverage of a secretive uh, Capitol Hill Bible study known as the C Street Group. Bell stepped down as CEO of World Magazine in 2005, but remained as a columnist. Yeah, he did. He had prostate cancer as well as Parkinson's disease and was not able to kind of keep up with the day-to-day operations. But uh, he had also done a great job of putting new leadership in place as well. Uh, So World Magazine carries on, and um, Joel Bells has left a good legacy in the world of Christian journalism. His uh, niece, for example, worked for Christianity Today. Uh, I work here at Ministry Watch along with Christina Darnell, who was also trained by World. In fact, Kim Roberts, uh, who um, does a lot of reporting for us, is also a graduate of the World Journalism Institute. So there's just a lot of great Christian journalists out there in the world that owe uh, their starter, at least their development, to Joel Bells. By the way, I should add that he is survived by uh, Carol Esther, his wife of 49 years, and five daughters, 16 grandchildren, and two great-grandchildren. And what's our next story? Well, after 17 years, the pastor of America's largest Episcopal church, uh, the Reverend Lawrence Levinson Jr., is retiring from full-time ministry in May. In a letter to his parish in January, Levinson wrote that the decision to leave his position at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas, has been one of the most difficult decisions uh, of our lifetime. During his tenure, the church reached over 10,000 members making it one of the largest Episcopal churches in the country. Now, what makes St. Martin's different than other Episcopal churches, which are dwindling in attendance? Well, they have a high expectation of the members who join, including attendance to services, Christian education, and participating in ministries at St. Martin. Another factor is the way Levinson has managed to navigate hot-button political and theological issues. For instance, he refused to officiate same-sex marriages— but he was willing to refer LGBTQ couples to other Houston-area churches. Uh, and even as a self-described Republican, having been a pastor to Bar- Barbara and George H.W. Bush, he hasn't backed down from criticizing the Republican Party for its support of Donald Trump in recent years. Now, for a lot of our listeners, Natasha, this might actually sound fairly moderate to even liberal, his positions, but within the Episcopal Church, it's probably about as conservative as you get, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the church has grown so large, because a lot of the conservatives in the Houston area gravitated uh, to his church. Uh, But according to, you know, Levinson, he says that he thought that the main reason that they've grown is because they were still committed, uh, in spite of all of this, to making or growing disciples for Jesus Christ. Well, our next story is the first article analyzing results of our recent survey to ministry leaders. Yeah, you know, we've been doing a survey of ministry executives for a quarterly for over a year now, and um, the findings are starting to get real interesting because we can now compare them to findings from a year ago. And uh, according to our quarterly survey, most recent one, uh, 47% of leaders of Christian ministries are 
over the age of 61. However, 53% are now under the age of 60. Results from the quarterly survey in April of 2023 uh, showed that 58% were over the age of 60. So we're seeing the average decline. And examining the trend among survey respondents, it appears that the age of Christian ministry leaders is indeed shifting downward. Bruce Dingman, who has been involved in recruiting leaders for Christian ministry since 1995, told Ministry Watch that my sense is that leaders are retiring a little bit older than a decade back. While the average age of leaders is going down some, that's because the turnover rate is high due to these now new retirements. About 12.5% of survey respondents last month said that succession planning is the most significant challenge that they face as a ministry leader. And there's another recent survey that came out. Can you give us some details about that one? According to the latest Giving in Faith report by Givelify and the Lake Institute on Faith and Giving, people and institutions of faith uh, helped reshape American philanthropy over the past year despite the economic, political, and social challenges. The survey found that 97% of respondents reported giving money, time, or material gifts over the past year, even as overall giving has declined throughout the U.S. Researchers also reported that about 40% of givers increased their contributions to houses of worship compared to 30% who had reported an increase uh, the year before. Philanthropic giving also was embraced by houses of worship last year. The study said, on average, congregations supported about three outreach programs monetarily, in kind, or with time during 2023. And who's in our ministry spotlight this week? National Pro-Life Ministry ICU Mobile saw a decline in its Ministry Watch rating from four stars to three stars, and we wanted to take a look and find out why. The rating was largely due to an increase in the organization's fundraising efforts. From 2018 to 2022, fundraising expenses jumped from less than $100,000 to nearly a quarter of a million dollars just in that five-year period. ICU ranks 15 out of 30, or about the midpoint for financial efficiency among its pro-life peers. Now, one of the reasons, Natasha, we wanted to focus on this group is because we have created a new pro-life category, and uh, we are featuring some pro-life ministries in the uh, weeks and months ahead in our ministry spotlight. By the way, I should add that ICU Mobile does have a donor confidence score of 81, which means despite the slight decline in financial efficiency, it means you can still give with confidence to this organization. You have three-star financial efficiency and an A transparency grade. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? Well, I just wanted to mention that I was in California all this week meeting with some of our readers and donors out there, and it was a really a, uh, a really an exciting time for me and an encouraging time as well to hear from uh, some of you face-to-face. I want to mention that I'll be in Colorado in the week ahead and Tennessee and Texas in the next month to six weeks or so. So if you live in those states, I'd like to meet you. Keep an eye out on your inbox for invitations to lunches that I'll be holding in those cities. And I also wanted to mention for the month of February, we are offering Handling Allegations in a Ministry, 
a book by Teresa Sidebotham uh, as our donor premium. If you give a gift of any size to the Ministry Watch during the month of February, we'll send you a copy of that book. I really recommend that ministry leaders and church leaders, and that would include deacons and elders as well, not just the, the staff of the church, get a copy and read that book. I found it to be a very helpful resource. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Kim Roberts, Steve Raby, Bob Smetania, Catherine Post, Mark Tooley, Shannon Cuthrill, Michelle Chabin, Jeff Brumley, and Brittany Smith. Special thanks to the Baptist News Global and the Institute on Religion and Democracy for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.